Welcome to Composer Talk. I'm your host, Matthew Wong. As a film and TV composer, I love talking to others about their backgrounds, composition techniques, music tech, and more. We all watch films, TV, and digital media and know the important role that scoring plays in storytelling. I want to invite you to join me on this adventure to learn more about the artists who are behind the scenes creating the music. If you want to learn more about the people interviewed on this podcast, make sure to follow us on our socials. And if you enjoy Composer Talk, please take the time to rate and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your preferred listening site is. Hey everyone, just wanted to take a quick second to shout out our friends at QDB.com. That's C-U-E-D-B.com. QDB is a cloud-based software that allows you to make your own customizable cue lists for spotting, composition, orchestration, mixing, and cue sheet delivery. If you'd like to try it out, use the code COMPOSERTALK for 15% off for one year. Our next guest is a legendary composer for video games who has contributed music to titles including Just Dance, Multiple Halo Games, Wolfenstein Youngblood, Prince of Persia, and he also has a new masterclass where you can learn the essentials of writing music for games, and I'm very excited to welcome him on the show. The composer is Tom Salta. Hello, Matthew. So good to see you. (laughs) Great to see you. It's a little funny because the last time we talked was in virtual reality. (laughs) Right? Yeah. That was that was actually really cool. I was so impressed with that. It it still had the same dynamic as a live event. It really did. You know, like you walk into a virtual room and you see like see people. Some people are standing in circles. Some people are paired off. Some people are standing on the edges. You know, shy, not know where to go. But it was great. But I think it was even cooler because then I could just point at people with like this virtual reality thing, and I would get their names. And that's the hardest part. About these conferences, like, oh, what is that person's name? I'm like scanning name, 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 name. Man, it was like Ready Player One. It was good stuff. Yeah, no, it really reminded me of that movie. And yeah, (laughs) (laughs) it'd be funny when you have more control of your avatars. And that's right. You know, I always wanted to dye my face blue. (laughs) So you can. uh, That that was a lot of fun. So anyway, it's good to be here, man. Yeah, so great to have you too. And yeah, I'm just like so excited to talk about video game music, uh, just your career in general and all that. So starting off, you were keyboard tech, right? Well, yes. I mean, uh, right out of high school, pretty much, uh, I got an opportunity to go on tour with the biggest R&B artist in the world at that time, Bobby Brown. So uh, I, I met the music director and at the time they, they had the band to put together um, but they had an opening. They didn't have a uh, uh, their sound designer slash keyboard tech. In other words, the guy who would listen to the whole performance, all the records, program mm-hmm. all the sounds for each keyboard player, uh, all five of them, uh, <laughs> and go on the road with them and make sure everything worked. So, I mean, for a 20-year-old, that was once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. It was just unbelievable to do. And uh, it it taught me a lot. It taught me a lot about everything, you know, everything in the music business and just just so many amazing stories that came out of that. Right, I'm sure. But you must have been really good with keyboards before that, right? Like, out of curiosity, what was your first synth? Yeah, I mean, right, I mean, in eighth grade, I got my first synthesizer. I was I had the uh, Roland JX3P, which I still have here in my studio, just up there as a more of a decoration. And um, so throughout high school, I was known as the keyboard guy. They just opened a recording studio in my high school the year I started. 
so I lived there. I like owned that room every day after school. I just loved it. Uh, and you know, throughout high school, I was doing demos and and recording groups. You know, hey man, I like I I've, my friend and I rap. We can you know. So I would just start doing stuff and. I just was super nerdy with with all that stuff. I had all the magazines. I was reading about all the producers that I wanted to be like. So yeah, I I, I start started putting in the hours early. Right. Yeah, and you, at your start, you did want to be a record producer too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That that was my initial dream, just to be a record producer. So did you like have any experience with like a specific video game that where the music resonated with you? Because I know you talked a bit in like that TED talk you did about reinventing your career and trying to find a way to combine all of your interests into an ideal thing. Yes, absolutely. Um, when when I talk about the idea of the music resonating with me, what I mean by that is that's the, the, the times where the music resonated with my own creative desire. In other words, my own creative style to to do stuff like that. I mean, I, of course, grew up with video games from the 70s, right? I had the Atari 2600, the Apple computers. You know, so gaming was always a thing. And, you know, Mario. And I, I used to come home and play the arcade game themes like Dig Dug, you know. You know, I'd come home and figure it out on the piano. But I don't consider that, like, resonating. Like, I didn't want to make Mario music. I didn't even want to make Zelda music, even though I loved it. You know, the themes were amazing. But it wasn't until I started playing games like Halo and Rainbow Six and Prince of Persia, The Sands of Time, that music resonated with me. That music said, wow, I, you know, I can do this. I want to do this. This is like creative freedom. This is so amazing. So that's where it all kind of, that's where the seed was planted. Yeah, when you talk about creative freedom like that, of curiosity, like what was... What did that mean? Like, was it something about the production style? Something about the actual like? This uh, it was. It was about the palette. It was. It was the production style. It was the palette of sounds. It's the fact that, you know, even when I had my focus purely on being a record producer, I was still the guy. Like, I love and to this day Trevor mm -hmm. Horn. Right. Right. The producer Trevor Horn. Um. You know, he's the guy who most people would know by producing Seal, but he he produced Yes. Uh. Uh, and Art of Noise. So he was always very experimental. He he always put sounds that you don't typically hear, instruments in a piece. Like one second you're listening to a regular, like a hip hop beat, and the next second you're listening to a string quartet or a, or a, a horn line or some weird, an opera singer. Like there's all this amazing, you know, um, com combination and, and influences from all disparate, areas of of music so i love the idea of putting unusual things you know putting this middle eastern vibe breaking out into that in the middle of a piece and so i always found that you know especially when we got to 2001 and and you know the whole britney spears movement you know in sync and and the music started becoming a lot more cookie cutter you know and, you know, not that I didn't respect Max Martin. I think he's one of the greatest producers in history. Um, but the idea that the music industry was getting very cookie cutter, I felt very restricted. Like if I was doing an artist, it's like, no, you can't put a, you can't put a string line in there. You can't put a, um, an orchestral thing in there. It has to stick to this vocabulary. I found it very limited. 
Um, so that's what I really mean by creative freedom. In other words, video games, it's like, I, whatever, it could be horror, it could be adventure, it could be sci-fi, it could be like, you could go anywhere. And, and I, because I was such a gamer, you know, games, I played all kinds of games. So it really allowed me to immerse myself into all these different unusual settings. It could be modern military. Again, it could be like, you know, just those three that I mentioned, Halo, Rainbow Six, and Prince of Persia. I mean, those are so different. Right. Listen to the music from all of those, you know? Um, so I just found it so inviting and inspiring. Yeah, it really is amazing too. Just, I guess just the, the amount of different composers you started to hear who were really just like putting their own stamp on these you know, games and making their own Sonic worlds. Yeah, it's, it's great. I mean, even if, just, just so funny, I, I had my... Uh, my iPhone hooked up in the car, in a car drive last night, and I just decided to put some things on random. And I start, I don't go back and listen to my scores, but just some of them started coming on. I'm like, what is this? I'm like, oh my God, I did that, you know? And it was like the, the, the variety of stuff. I'm like, that is exactly what I got, got involved in it and to the, the game business, you know, like Prince of Persia came on and then Tom Clancy's Hawks came on and then Galactic Rain came on. And then like, it was all these different things. I'm like, that is why I did this. It was just this adventure through music, you know, and it, and it continues. Right. Do you find it challenging these days to, you know, take like unconventional instrument groups and stack them together and try to come up with those like new sonic explorations i i find it challenging but not Mm. difficult not not, i mean it's enjoyable it's an enjoyable challenge so i i find i I welcome it so yes i've i've always been the guy who gets themselves into those kind of situations like how do we combine like uh this style and that style with a little touch of this and put them together you know, I, I seem to find myself in those situations quite a bit. You know, reminds me of like the, the A-team <laughs> back in the 80s when I grew up. It was like all these like impossible missions, like, you know, that can't be done. So, yeah, I find myself in all of those challenges, but I, I love them. That's kind of what keeps me interested and engaged. Right. I mean, we talked a little bit about it earlier, but so the album you put out, Two Days or Die, uh, under your artist's <laughs> name, Atlas Plug, like... It's so funny because it, it does go between rock, hip hop, uh, techno, so many genres that don't seemingly, you know, work well together. But it it sounds great, especially to this day. And thanks. I was thinking about it in reverse. Like, what if there was a pitch to do music for like a library album, and it had all of those things listed out, and how <laughs> seemingly impossible that would be? Yeah, I mean, a uh, half of that album was done deliberately with. A strategy in mind talking to my publisher at the time half of that I mean that the whole point of that was to do an album of music that would be perfect for licensing in 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 video games film trailers and TV so I had to be strategic you know talking to them about what the the most kind of licensed music was in those days and I guess you could bundle it up into like big beat you know, in 2003, Big Beat was definitely a style. Like if you listen to Chemical Brothers, uh, Crystal Method, th- those were a lot of the influences, certainly, in that record. It was very intentional. But then half of it was just me having fun and not worrying about the formula so much. But still working within a vocabulary that I knew would be attractive for licensing. And 
it worked. I mean, they're, um, every single song on that album was licensed. Wow. Every single one, which was pretty amazing. You know, not many albums can do that. And, and the shelf life of that thing is amazing. I mean, that was 2003. We're in 2020 and the thing still gets licensed. It's an electronic, it's a, it's an electronica record, you know? So whatever it was, I mean, it was a, it was a crazy time. I had no idea what, what I was doing to some degree, but, uh, but it worked and, and it was a lot of fun. So many different influences, even Middle Eastern, there was orchestral fusion in it. You know, I was, I was just trying to be me, mm -hmm. but in a context that would be attractive for the licensing world. And it, it worked. It got me in the door for video games. It started being embraced. The first video game it got licensed in was Rally Sport Challenge. In fact, they licensed four songs from it. Uh, Crackdown. Um, Crackdown was crazy. Did you Have you ever played that game? I haven't, no. Okay, I love that game to this day, and I'm so glad it's backwards compatible with the one. Um, in that day, they licensed they licensed four songs off the album. They actually requested one that wasn't on the album. They asked me, "Can you do like a fusion of like like Asian slash electronica on that? Like really? Because because there was this gang. There was like this dangerous Asian gang that took over this part of the city. So they like we want this kind of music that has." Um, more of more of a, a ethnic influence and uh but they ended up some of the level designers took the album cover and started putting it on buildings <laughs> in the game so i'm playing the game and i look up the building and it had my album cover it said in fine stores everywhere fat atlas plug i'm like what it's like they did not ask my permission but that's okay <laughs> wow. you know that's so awesome so it, it was an unusual unique time i'd say Right. And I did want to ask, like, one, I guess, if you'd recommend that as a way to get in for, for aspiring game composers, but two, like, did it seem like a natural progression from those songs getting licensed to you being asked to be a composer for games? Sort of natural. I mean, one of the, the I'd say the first triple A game that was closest to that, that was directly affiliated with that record being, being noticed was Need for Speed Underground 2. Mm-hmm. So if you listen to my music in that, that was full out Atlas Plug scoring a game, right? That was done very intentionally. The audio director, Charles Deenan, was like, no, we want another two days or die. We want another, that, you know, and so I was trying to copy myself, and but in the context of cut, scoring these cutscenes and things like that. So yeah, that, that, that was the most natural transition. But then I was able to get away from from it i never wanted to be labeled atlas plug my entire career that's why i came up with a different name it wasn't like uh, like the bt thing you know or bt was always bt you know for me i wanted atlas plug to be in a box so that tom salta could establish himself as a proper composer i guess doing things that have nothing to do with that with that kind of style my manager didn't really like that idea because you know it's hard enough to market one person no less two um, but it took more time, but it worked. So uh, to this day, a lot of people don't know that I'm Atlas Plug. So I guess that's the idea. <laughs> wow. That's amazing to think actually. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, the, you want me to hear this funny story sure. about the, those worlds colliding in a way, which is coincidental and had nothing to do with each other. When I scored Ghost Recon Advanced Warfighter, I went to E3 and I was so excited because this was like the first E3 where I actually, you know, 
a game that I worked on is being showcased in a big way. They had like the soldiers standing there in, in all the uniforms with the guns and they were they were like they were delivering the the presentation to the audience and they're all in character. You know, you know, gonna talk about Ghost Recon, you know, what all this stuff. But before the right at the beginning of the presentation, all of a sudden this music that played wasn't from the game. It was it was Atlas Plug. It, they played an Atlas Plug song. And I'm standing there in the background like a fly on the wall and they play this song and then they go into talking about Ghost Recon. I'm like, what? Like, so I literally, I got my hat, I was on the phone with the publisher. I'm like, what? Did you know that they were using Atlas Plug in uh, E3 for the Ghost Recon booth? Like, yeah, the call just came in this morning. I'm like, did they know that I'm the, the, the composer? It's like, no. I was like, holy God, that was so crazy. What a coincidence, right? Coincidence. I don't believe in coincidences, but that was just really, really uh, interesting. So, wow, so many stories about that record. That's really funny. <laughs> um, so I did want to shift over to, uh, we have this master class coming out. I, or at least, yeah. I guess, oh, let me shift this because it's probably going to be out after the master class has been announced. Right. So the, the, on the day we're recording this, yeah. I'm actually going to announce that this master class exists yeah. publicly. But I mean, so you've given like, this TED talk that I was obsessed with when it first came out, you've spoken at many of the best <laughs> universities about, you know, what you do. Um, where did your interest in like teaching and, you know, trying to like share your knowledge come from? Well, I've always enjoyed connecting with people. Uh, and what better way to connect with people when you're in a position to share your, your knowledge and, skills and what you've learned um, with people who do what you want to do. So I guess the first ways that I got a taste for this was after I became established enough to for people to want to to care to want to see me speak on a panel, you know, whether it's at a an event like AES or Game Sound Con. Well, actually Game Sound Con didn't even exist in those days, but GDC did, the Game Developers Conference. So when I when I started speaking at things like that, that was a lot of fun. I'm like, this is this is really cool because you know, a composer's life is you're sitting in a room by yourself pretty much all day, right? Uh, and like, this is really cool. Uh, I'm really enjoying this. I'm enjoying seeing other people who do what I do, and because you know, we're, we feel especially, I mean, composer and especially me because I'm not in fray of Los Angeles. I I never meet people who do what I do. So when I get a chance to talk to people who care about it and I can resonate, we share war stories, I can geek out. I could talk forever about it. So I love that energy. And there's just a sense of positivity, particularly in the game business. I don't know what it is and I hope it never goes away. But there's this sense of, of, of cooperation and friendship, uh, even though I, technically we're, we compete for a lot of the same things. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't feel like cutthroat. So I just enjoy the being around people and I, I enjoy being around creative people especially. And then I started getting asked to speak at universities. Um, I live near uh, NYU and so I've, I've, I've spoken there quite regularly to their, usually their film scoring classes and things like that. Uh, and then that evolved into something where I began giving a, an annual summer workshop at NYU just for game music. And uh, I was I was invited uh, and grateful for the opportunity to put together some kind of curriculum, I guess you would say, 
And uh, I enjoyed that so much. So I'm like, this is great. And then I, then I just started saying, well, you know, social media is advancing so much. Why don't I start connecting with people there? So I, I started a Twitch channel and then I started meeting some regular people. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to start doing this private class. So I limited it down to, and I still kind of have this, but I don't advertise it because it's booked. It's like, it's just like a private little class that I teach just with a limited bunch of people and it's this ongoing thing. But then I'm like, you know what? This is very, it, it's only a, sh a small number of people. There's so many people around the world and now with the pandemic, people can't even get to conferences. So people are studying from home. I'm like, why not share that? And why not go out to the world? There's there's people that, you know, from different countries who can't even afford even without a pandemic to go to GameSoundCon or GDC or go to a university. But there's so many talented people on every corner of the earth. So why not put this masterclass out? And why not put these presentations together and package them in a way that people who are really committed can afford to, to take and invest in? And so that was really the reason for doing it. Um, and I still get that interaction because what I decided to do is uh, at the end of the course, you can you can take the stuff you've learned, create a piece of music, send it to me, and I will call you. I will give you a, a live Zoom call for for five minutes or whatever to give you some critique and feedback on it. So how cool is that? We can kind of reach out to the entire world and, and help people around the globe who are creatives who have dreams on being composers. Why not? Yeah, I think that's amazing. And also just looking at the curriculum, I mean, I was... So happy to see that you have a business of game music uh, yeah. portion because I feel like, you know, there there's other YouTube content. I mean, obviously not from people of your, your stature, but uh, the lack of, you know, business and marketing in game music, which I think is so important. I think you said well, that. That's the thing. You know what? And and I got the idea for that because I cannot tell you how many times I've speaking at these conferences or or even at the schools and they're like, you know what? You know what they don't teach us enough of is the business side. Like how do you, okay, we have all the knowledge and the, the technical stuff and the musical stuff and the, the terms and terminology, but what about like how to turn this into a career? How do you become a successful freelance composer? What's the mindset? So I'm like, there's an answer for that. And no one wants to talk about it. So that was the that was the reason for me putting together that talk. And 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 a lot of people say that's one of their favorite ones because they don't no one talks about it enough, you know? So um I really wanted to cover the whole gamut. So that's what game audio essentials is about. It's the first course, there's gonna be more. But it's like if you wanted to immerse yourself, you're like, I don't understand anything about it, but I wanna go in and you want an overview of the entire ecosystem of being a game music composer that's that's why i put that course together so amazing and yeah just to, to shift this to um you know talking about the differences for video game music versus other kinds of music just because we've had a lot of film and tv composers sure on the podcast and i'd say that both of those mediums are pretty similar i mean i feel like with tv Very, you yeah they're the, both linear right right just need a big riser in TV to the commercial break. It's the only difference. Mm -hmm. Formulaic, <laughs> for sure. Uh, what are the things that you find, you know, make really good video game music? I mean, there's obviously like the technical aspects of, you know, making things loopable in a way where it doesn't get boring. Um, what else stands out as, you know, some of the essentials? Well, I, I think when you can 
the music can effortlessly hit all of the mechanical technical needs without showing itself. Hmm. Um, so it sounds like it was just a linear score and was meant to sound that way. Where it's a seamless, beautiful score that feels just like I'm watching the TV or, or film. And the music did never revealed itself to to show its parts, to just you know, to to show the seams, to basically give the player the idea that oh, I just controlled this music, I just made that happen. Oh, I just heard it loop. Oh, this didn't sound like a natural transition. I mean, as soon as you start, your attention starts getting drawn to the music in in that way or most sometimes arguably in any way uh then then it's not doing a good job so i think the the scores and the video game music that inspires me the most is the stuff that i just appreciate for what it is the stuff that just made it bigger than life the stuff where i hear it and i remember that moment in the game where it's like oh my god yes i remember that takes me right back you know, to that immersion. And just like being a kid, uh, thinking back to some of your favorite movies or games, I mean, when that music becomes part of that memory, that's a win for me. That's like, yeah, that's magic. For sure. Uh, and then I just have a couple last questions here before we go to the last segment for this podcast. But we have a write-in, actually, from Daniel Stockdale about hybrid action workflow. Wow. Uh, he asks, do you sound design before, during, or after writing the cue? Well, I, I, I hate to give an answer which is not going to be insightful, but I don't normally do sound design. Um, I think he's talking about sound effects, right? I think he's talking about, like, you know, like, creating, like, like do you just, like, open up a pad sound or do you, you know, make it really unique and cool just because you do have a lot of amazing, like, textures and whatnot in your work? Oh, I see. Okay. Well, let all right, so if we're talking about sound design in the sense of music production, in other words, versus the writing of it, it depends. There literally have been cues where I say, I'm going to write this on a piano from beginning to end, and then I'm going to turn it into a piece. But typically, that will happen with a theme. Typically, that will happen with something where it's meant to have a structure that never changes. So it's a composition. But when I'm doing a underscore, if you say that kind of game, where it's tension music or battle music or atmospheric, you know, suspense or whatever it is, the sounds themselves usually become part of the composition. They oftentimes help me write. I mean, did you ever, for any anyone that is, who loves synthesizers or samplers, they know exactly what I'm talking about where you can kind of go through patch surfing and you come across the sound and you just lose yourself in the sound, you know, because it has all this echoey stuff or this beautiful swelling or these textures and you just, it, you treat it as an instrument. You're not thinking of the notes. You're just performing the sound. So in, in that sense, I often, most often will just compose with the sounds themselves rather than just thinking about it like notes. Right. That's terrifying when you uh, you have a musical thought and then you, you go open up the preset browser and hope the thought doesn't get completely distorted. <laughs> oh, right. Well, that's that's right. And, and that's why it's really good to separate 
the these two actions where where it's just the pure creativity and then the pure looking for sounds. I, I try to separate those things and, and I talk about that a lot in my creative process where I'm deliberately doing the sound surfing and then when it comes to just literally writing that's done deliberately separately. Although sometimes you end up falling into a just creative flow and that's good too. But the idea is not to thwart your process and lose that idea because, oh, wait, now I have to find the sound to do it. No, you don't want that. For sure. And yeah, I guess it's just on the topic of you know sound and whatnot. Uh, we'll go on to the last segment for this podcast, a segment called Tech Talk, where I list off a tech topic and you say as much or as little as you want about it. <laughs> Where's my cricket sound? Go ahead. <laughs> First one is DAW. Logic Pro. You've been on it in the long haul, too, right, since Emulator? I've been in the long haul, man. I've been on Logic since it was on Atari ST, hanging on a bunch of chains in my studio when I was standing up in, at 18 years old. Um, I remember that was called Notator back in the day. Right. And I remember the copy protection was a little cartridge you'd stick in the side of the Atari. Um, so crazy. Yeah, that that was made by eMagic. I still have my eMagic uh, AMT8s and Unitor 8s. So those are my MIDI interfaces. Um, so yeah, I, I've been in there. So I was there from when it transitioned to Mac and it was Notator Logic. And then years later, Apple bought them and became Logic. And yeah, so I, I know that program like the back of my hand. Awesome. Or better. <laughs> Next, we have Eventide Audio. That's an unusual thing to throw out there randomly. Uh, H, uh, what is it? The H... 3000 H something 3000 Eventide um what I love about Eventide is that they've come back full force from being the unattainable expensive hardware modules into these bite-sized incredible sounding little software modules um so you know like and and I'm a reverb snob I love my reverbs, but I can never afford the ones that I really wanted, like the $10,000 units and things like that. But now you can get these bite-sized reverb units, especially Eventide, putting out all this unique stuff. Just when you thought you've seen it all, they come out with Black Hole, and then they come out with Mangled Verb, and then they come out with, you know, Shimmer or whatever it was. So many cool things. So I just love the Eventide thing now. I just love these little... I don't want to say one trick pony. I don't mean that as a as an insult, but I actually appreciate it because it's much more the way hardware used to be back in the day where it's like you you, you call up something because it does one thing really incredibly well. Right. So, I I just love what they but they're doing everything. They they but yeah, so definitely use Eventide. For sure. One of my sound design highlights I think would have been doing the uh, I did a bunch of the the stock presets for Mangled Verb. It was really funny seeing like Dave Pensado at his studio in LA using one of those presets. It's like, huh. Oh wow, you did. Nice. Yeah. I yeah. love that thing. Yeah. Loved it. Uh let's see. Next here. Oh, uh Mono Synth. Mini Moog Model D. Nice. Simple and easy. Stay Classic sitting right here. <laughs> That would, that, that's, you know, if I ever want to feel good, I just go back and listen to some 80s music with that thing playing the bass lines. Everything from Whitney Houston to Shaka Khan to Michael Jackson to just it, to Parliament to Gap Band. Oh, it's just, just nothing like it. For sure. Uh, what about favorite software synths? Ooh, damn. 
so many good ones coming out. Uh, damn. Oh, well, you know, Omnisphere going back. I mean, that's one of my favorites. Uh, that's, I'm going to say it's my Desert Island software synth. I'd say my latest software synth that I really like, I was surprised, like how many more synths do we really need, uh, is uh, Pigments. Hmm. Arturia. Like, damn, really? This is, this is really good. But it's tons, tons. The problem is there's too many. Right. You know? So I'm trying to just get it down to my favorites. But uh, yeah, I'd say Omnisphere is, has always been just it's my feel-good favorite, and it just never gets old because you can keep on adding to it. Yeah. It's endless. It's amazing, that, I mean, especially because it has a sampler and synthesis aspects. Like, yeah, it's, yeah. you could do 90% of music with it. Pretty much. Absolutely. Uh, Cool. Well, that's all I have here for Tech Talk, unless there's any other random tech things going around your brand that you've been excited about. Oh, don't, don't even go into my brain, my friend. That would, <laughs> uh, that would go for another week. But yeah, no. I'm fine. <laughs> cool. Well, Tom, it's been such a pleasure having you on the podcast. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks, Matt. This was a lot of fun. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Composer Talk. If you like what we're doing, feel free to follow us on Instagram or Facebook. The show is mixed and sounds great thanks to the incredible Eric Bard, who's also a talented composer, producer, and mixer. Until next time... This has been Matthew Wong.